to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. And now we even share this not only through these recordings, but we provide these lessons live on YouTube every Sunday morning at 9.15 on YouTube. And also they are available throughout the week. We do this because Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Class teacher Doug Brady continues the study of the book of 2 Timothy, and the discussion between the Apostle Paul and Timothy, who is a young preacher. And the discussion centers around the growing apostasy throughout the early church and even today in our churches around the world. This lesson continues the discussion for the verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which is full of information that has been given to us. Doug has had four lessons so far, including this one, on these short verses to date. Be sure to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week our class grows with more people who want to study the Bible and to look at the sometimes difficult areas of study. We invite you to visit our class if you are in the area. We meet in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building, and we begin at 9.15 a.m. each Sunday morning. We look forward to meeting you. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium, ready to begin the lesson. So, here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. In our study of Second Timothy, we have been going through the book. We're at the end of the third chapter. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to open it up to 2 Timothy 3, 17. We're going to look first at verse 16 and a little bit of review, and then we will move forward. But let me pray. Father, bless this time together today. Help us to understand what your word is there for us. All these wonderful things that were hidden from so many people but now are laid open for us. Give us divine understanding and help us, Father, to understand and build a foundation of truth in our life so that when the apostate teaching comes, we can recognize it and have the boldness to stand up and deal with it. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Look at this again. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, when we looked at that verse, we saw two things that are key doctrines about the Bible. Number one, the Bible is inspired by God. That is, breathed out by God. So the inspiration of the Scriptures is number one. Number two, it follows that, says it is God-breathed, it is inerrant. 
It is inerrant. So we've seen those two things. There is one other important doctrine about the Scripture that we haven't talked about yet. Can anybody tell me what that is? We've looked at training, and we've looked at profitable uh, last week. I want you to be thinking about it, because I'm not going to tell you what that third one is until we get to verse 17, which is going to illustrate this specific doctrine about the Scripture. But I want us, before we leave 16, I want you to see some things. There are four purposes or goals in that verse that I want you to see. The first one is teaching, and I want you to see how it correlates. Teaching, you see, has to do with the acquisition of knowledge and the understanding of its import, establishing a foundation of truth. It's the first thing that we have to do in this four series or four goal purpose. But the next three work together. You see, teaching establishes a foundation. Then you come to reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and they have to do with changing lives. So, the Bible is the foundation, but the change comes from the next three. That's how they correlate. But if you don't have the foundation, can you be changed? No. It requires that foundation of God's Word. Now, once we acquire that kind of scriptural foundation, it becomes our safeguard against false teaching. Because if you know the correct understanding of the scriptures, when someone deviates from it, then you can tell. In addition to that, it is now our source of guidance as to how we should direct our lives. One of the important things that we need to see, and it's an, a clear test for us, I think, in this age of apostasy. You know, when they used to sing a song, we're in the age of Aquarius. Well, that was just a, a foretend of the age of apostasy. And that's what we're in right now. They don't write any songs about the age of apostasy because they're trying to keep it quiet. But the fact is, the leaders and the teachers in our churches are instructed to use the Holy Scriptures to confront people who err, and to correct their behavior. Do we see that going on in our society at any, to any extent? Not really. Why? Is, there, is that happening because there's no error? No, that's not the reason. It's happening because those who know the truth are scared or intimidated. And they're worried about what would happen if they tried to do it. And so you begin to see that we have to be vigilant to keep the faith pure. Now, let's look at verse 317. This verse says, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now that seems rather simple. But when we start to unpack it, I think you will find that it's not. And there's a very important grammatical concept here we've got to learn today as we go through. And I want to start in unpacking it, looking at the phrase, the man of God. The man of God. The word man is anthropos. It's the universal name for mankind. It's the generic term. The word man is in the nominative case. What does that mean? 
If it's in the nominative case, it's going to be a subject. Who said that? Good. Subject. Now, the word for God, which is theos, is in the genitive. What does genitive mean? It means possessive. Those who use a genitive case, so it could either be translated the man of God or God's man. The reason they translated it here, man of God, is because if they said God's man, it would be hard to use the definite article there in English because you couldn't say the God's man. The object. No, object is accusative. Now, so the man of God, I do like though to translate it and understanding it is God's man. Why? Because that just seems more possessive to me. I want you to think about this a second. In the world, there are three types of people. There are people who are unbelievers, and they know they're unbelievers. There are people who are believers, and they know they are believers. And in the middle, there are people who are unbelievers who think they're believers, but are not. But you take that third group out on the right side. You notice I like to keep them on the right side. Um, on the right side, and there's a number of different... There's a, everybody on that group of believers is a born-again believer. But there are subsets. Of that group, there are some who are disciples. Now, every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. Disciple is someone who is following God. But in that group of disciples who are trying to follow God, there is a smaller group, which would be men and women of God that he's describing in this verse. And so the man of God, I want us to take a deep look at today. Because God's man is a man who seeks God above all else. That's what he wants. He wants to be close to and a part of God. Being a man of God involves his position of sonship, his position of humility. You know, if there's anything that Christ had, it was he was humble. And God's man is a humble man. And also leadership. You see, the world doesn't see that. You can't have humble and leadership together. Jesus said, oh yes, you can. And I'm going to demonstrate it to you. And the man of God is someone who does that. He is on a character-shaping journey as he gets closer and closer to his Lord. And pretty soon, as the light shines on him, he will be able to understand and know God's purpose for him. And God's purpose for him in God's plan. So when you look at this and you begin to see God's man is uh, really three things. He's one who obeys the commands of God with joy. Now, I grew up in a home where discipline was important, and I would obey for fear of discipline. I would disobey when I thought I could avoid discipline. But there came a time in my life when my, I matured, to the extent that I recognized how much my father loved me and how much, what a great man he was and that I ought to do his respect or he was due my respect and therefore I enjoyed obeying him even though it may be contrary to what I really wanted to do. With God, it's, it's so much more than that. 
His love for you is more than any, doesn't compare with my Father's love for me. It is so much greater, God's love for you. And He knows exactly what you want to do. There's no failure in Him in judgment or what is right or wrong. So the man of God obeys with joy. That's number one. Number two, this one, he is one who does not live for the things of this life, but for the things of eternity. He doesn't live for the things of this life. He lives for eternity. And he is one who's willing. He serves his God freely giving of his resources and gladly suffers the consequences of his faith. This kind of man was talked about in the Old Testament, and I found the best example of it is in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, where he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Paul describes this same man over in 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, starting in verse 17, where he says this, Come out of their midst. And be separate, says Yahweh, or the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is what he's calling us to be, a man of God, God's man. So the question then is going to come up, how do you know if you're God's man? How can you know? How do you know? Well, how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? How do you know somebody? You look at the characteristics of that type of person and then see, do those characteristics match with my life? If they don't, you aren't. If they do, you are. I've been able, as I've studied this week, to come up with five key characteristics of a man of God that I want to share with you today. I will show you where I got them, and uh, I want you to see these five characteristics. Now, if you are a woman who is married to a man, these five characteristics, plus the three areas of attack I'm going to show, share with you afterwards, these should be on your prayer list for the man that you're married to. If you have a son or a nephew, these should be on your prayer list for that son or that nephew so that you can pray for these things, that God develop these characteristics in your husband, father, son, nephew, etc., boyfriend, grandson, especially grandsons. I don't have any of those, unfortunately, just granddaughters. Uh, not yet, yes. Hopefully that will change. But let's look at him. Number one, he has confidence in his identity. Who and what he is. The man of God has confidence in his identity. Do you remember when we studied Elijah? He was a man of conviction. What did he believe? Well, he was convinced of his identity. What was that? That God was real. He was God's man. And that God had the power and the resources to enable him to meet whatever challenge came before him. He was convinced of that uh, identity and who and what God was. If you look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
What did Peter have to say? He said, and coming to him as a living stone, which had been rejected by men, it is but his choice and precious in the sight of God, that he was referring to Jesus, you, that is followers of Jesus, also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So notice, what is he saying? You're going to be a, you're a holy priest to me. You don't have to go to anybody else to go to God. You can go directly to him as my representative, as his ambassador. You have that right. So that's number one, confidence in his identity. Number two, he welcomes correction. You know, I, I used to not welcome correction at all. I used to avoid it. But the man of God welcomes correction. God's man knows intimately the gift of biblical correction. Look at what Job said. One of the three most righteous men to ever live. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. David, in Psalm 26, 2, said, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. What he's saying here is, is, I want you to examine me. If there's places where I need correction, show me. This man of God, he welcomes divine correction. Whether from his friends who are uh, a biblical or directly from God. Number three, he follows Jesus' example in leadership. He's going to exercise leadership, but he's going to exercise it Jesus' way. What is Jesus' way? Well, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. All right, let's try and identify the attitude that's in Christ Jesus. Who, though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Now, let me just tell you, there's a lot of cults out there who will cite to this verse, and you say, see, it says he wasn't, he wasn't equal with God. He chose not to try and grasp that and be equal with God. That is not what this word grasp means. And it's hard to translate in just one word into English. But let's say Tommy was walking down the street. She had her purse slung over her arm. And some guy comes running by and grabs that purse. But she holds on. It just so happened that Frank was a few steps, five steps in front of her. He turns, and after he has this conversation with the man who was grabbing the purse, the man is flat on the ground. But Tommy still has her purse. She grasped it, that is to hold and not let go of. That's what that word means, hold and not let go of. So in this instance, Jesus was equal with God, but he said, I'm not going to hold on to that position and say, I don't want to become a human. Look at those filthy things. That, no. Instead, he said, I will. And I will become a human. And I have to be human so I can die. And he will be completely human and completely God all at the same time. But he has this attitude of self-sacrifice and humility. You see, when he was born as a human, did he, was he born in a palace? No, he was born in a stable. You couldn't get more humble means than what he had. 
And that was his attitude as you begin to see it. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Look what Peter has to say about this attitude. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. He is our example of the humble leadership of the Lord God. And that's what God's man exercises, that kind of leadership. Not a lording it over someone. Not I'm in authority, you'll do what I say. Do you think Jesus ever said to somebody, listen, my way or the highway? No, he didn't say that. Nor would he, because he doesn't lead that way. When Peter and he finally met up up in the Sea of Galilee, did Jesus come to him and say, Peter, you know you made a big mistake back there. You know, I, I know exactly what happened. I could quote to you what your words were in each, but I'm not going to use some of the language you used, Peter. Are you going to get it right this time, Peter? Do I have to do something else to you? To no, he didn't say any of that. You know what he said? Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Yeah, but do you really love me? If you do, shepherd my lambs. That's what he said. That was the leadership. And did Peter become this powerful spiritual warrior? Yes, because of the leadership of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So, that's number three. Let's look at number four. He knows and exhibits the fear of the Lord. You know, some people want to say the fear of the Lord, that's Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. No, it's not. Let me give you the perfect example. If we had to pick a disciple who Jesus loved more than anybody else, who would we select? John. John. In fact, what did they call him? The beloved disciple. Now, he's on the island of Patmos, and Jesus shows up over there. And what, when John turns to see him, what happens? He falls on his face in complete submission. He didn't go hug him and kiss him and say, I've missed you, Jesus. How are you doing? When are you coming to take? No, he was on his face. Was he asking any questions? No, he was awaiting the command of his master. That's what he was doing. You see, he has that kind of respect and reverence for God. The man of God does. Look what Joshua tells the people before he leaves them, right at the end of his life. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods from your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt serve the Lord. That's in Joshua 24, 14. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that is experiencing it, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest to you in your consciences. One final passage on that, in Revelation 15, 4, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who will not fear you and glory? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come up and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice that. What are they going to fear? There's a compound verb here. Fear and glorify. What are they going to fear and glorify? His name. Interesting. His name is important to him. Do we ever misuse his name? It should sadden us every time we do that. Now, one-fifth characteristic I want you to see. 
Moses said, God, you know, I'd really like to see your glory. And he said, well, if you see me like that, you'll probably die if you saw all my glory. So he said, I'll tell you what you do. I'm going to hide you in this little cleft here in the rock, and I'll put my hand and cover you. And then as I go by, I will lift my hand so you can see the trail of my glory, and you can... And he would recite his glory by saying his name and who he was. And because of that, Moses came down and his face shone like a light. And, you know, they made him wear a veil when, they was, when he's talking to the people. Imagine the trouble his wife had. I can't go to sleep with you glowing over there. Cut it out. But, you know, interesting how that works. Now, no, number five he recognizes that he has a responsibility, a responsibility. For everyone who has been given much, much shall be required, Luke says in Luke 12, 48. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. In Colossians 3, 23, it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather for man. You have a responsibility once you bear his name. I'm a Christian. That means Christ in one. I represent him. I have a responsibility. The man of God recognizes that responsibility. And so as we progress in our scriptural knowledge, and God starts to build these characteristics or know that he's going to build those characteristics in you, will the enemy allow that to go unchallenged? No. He will come after you. He doesn't want people to be men of God. He wants to avoid it at all costs, and you need to see it. I'm going to suggest to you three main areas that Satan is going to attack a man who can become a man of God or who is becoming a man of God or who is already a man of God. He's going to have three areas where he's going to attack. This is also what you should be praying about for the men in your life. Number one, he will seek to convince the man of God that he's a failure. Something will go wrong, you're a failure. The enemy knows the importance of strong, godly men in our society. They are critical to communities. To, his goal is to take them out. Satan wants to just take them out. He uses the fear of failure to attack them mentally and destroy their confidence. He uses that every chance he gets. When you recognize the fear of failure is from the enemy, then you can pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and stand against that scheme, declaring yourself, I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I'm made in God's image. More than that, Romans 8.37 says, a verse we should all memorize, nay, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Now, I want you to think about that just a second. Imagine a man of God comes home, and his wife greets him, and he, she, she can tell by looking at him something's wrong. And she finally gets him to talk to her. And yes, this really went bad. You know, I'm just a failure. I, this shouldn't have happened like this. I'm just a failure. And he, she can then very sweetly say to him, Aren't you a son of God? Well, yeah. Uh, aren't you adopted by the Heavenly Father? Weren't you made in God's image? You're a failure? Nay. You're not. In fact, 
in all these things, you're more than a conqueror. This word, if you were trying to look at it in the Greek, it means a super conqueror, over and above. That's what God has made his men. Does he promise that in the war, the man of God will win every battle? No. No. There will be some battles that are lost. But the war will never be lost. And that's the first way of attack. He wants to cause men to think they're failures, especially spiritually. You can look at some men, and I have talked to them before, who are extremely victorious, say, in politics. But they look spiritually, they're failures. Or they're extremely victorious in um, materialistic areas and how their business is run and what they're doing. And yet, they think they're failures, really, spiritually. And Satan has done that to them and made them ineffective and in fact may try seeks to emasculate them from being God's men I can tell you from experience there is nothing more important in a man's life than a mother and a wife who prays for him there's just nothing number two attack he will try and convince you that no one respects you or the positions or stands you're taking he's going to try and convince you of that You see, Satan understands that respect is important to you because God wired you that way to give respect to others and to receive respect from others. That's why the enemy uses this lie against you. If he can get you to think that you aren't respected, it is easier for you then to disrespect others and declare to both yourself and your adversary that you were made to lead And to love others with respect. Now now understand that. We need to understand we were made to be respected. But we can declare to our adversary, Satan, when the time comes and we think not. I am a man of respect. There are people who respect me. But you know what? It's easier for him to say that if his friends or his wife or his children or his grandchildren tell him that. Number three. He will argue that when you are vulnerable, that is a sign of weakness. You can't be open and vulnerable here. People will think you're weak. Vulnerability is for the weak. If you're not the predator, you're the prey. That's what he will say. And we need to understand, no, that is not true at all. That is a lie from Satan. Now, it's difficult for most men to be vulnerable But God created us to be part of a community and a family that shares the struggles in a way that actually resembles worship more than whining. The Bible says, those who are weak, God will make strong. If you read in Isaiah 40, 28-31, you'll see that. If you read in 2 Corinthians 12-10, you will see that. So, we should understand Satan's lie here that... When you are vulnerable, that's just a sign of weakness. To be twofold, this lie is. Number one, he says vulnerability will bring you down when actually it will build you up and glorify God when done the right way. He also says weakness comes from vulnerability when in fact weakness comes from dependence on self rather than on God. So I want you to see, now I know I took a long time here going over these principles, but I think it's important for us to see. 
Now let's go back to this verse in 2 Timothy. This verb here, may be, is the verb. Now, in all of our languages, in Greek, in Latin, Hebrew, English, you have moods for your verb. You have indicative, which is a statement of fact, interrogative, which is a question, imperative, which is a command, subjunctives, uh, which is a one of possibility or probability. Which mood applies to that verb? May be. What? Subjunctive, you say. Well, that verb in the Greek is subjunctive. But that doesn't seem right to me. What does that mean? So the man of God possibly will be adequate? Possibly? Subjunctive like that? Ah, but we have to understand Greek grammar. Let's go to the next phrase there I want to show you. So that, now in the Greek that's one word. It can be translated that, so that, in order that. The word in Greek is hina. And it is described in a grammatical setting as a henna clause or a henna phrase. And if you have this word henna such that it is followed by a subjunctive verb, it reverses the subject subjunctivity and makes it strongly indicative. In other words, the verb is stronger then it was just put in indicative a mood when you have this henna clause. So, I don't like that translation because it doesn't take into effect that henna clause. It's so that the man of God will be adequate, forcefully, will be. That's what this henna clause does, and I want you to see that. It sees the purpose. In your notes, I gave you the example of uh, Romans eleven thirty-two. in looking at this. I'm going to move on, though, because of the lack of time that we have here. Let's look at the next part of this. After we look at that, the next part is adequate. How do the four major translations we have available today translate that word? It's an adjective. In the ESV, it translates it competent. In the KJV, it translates it perfect. In the NAU, that is the New American Standard, it's uh, adequate. And in the New King James, it's complete. Now, you know a word's hard to trans get the right translation for when all four, none of them agree. Now, let's look at them for just a second. And let's go to the New American Standard first. You look at the word adequate. Now, I'm great, greatly familiar with that verb because when I was in grade school, they didn't put A's and B's on the report. They were going through this phase. And you, you learned as a kid eventually what it meant. But if it would have been an A, they put down superlative. If it was a B, they put down good. If it was a C, they put adequate. And if it was a D, it needs to try harder. There's nothing C about what God's Word is and what it's going to accomplish in our lives. That is a horrible translation in my book. Now you look at the King James, and it says perfect. Perfect is an A+. Plus. Once I do this, am I going to be perfect? No, I'll never be perfect. That's not the best translation of this word. The new King James uses this idea of complete and ESV competent. 
None of those really get the gist of this word. If you look in your notes at the meaning of this word, its primary meaning was to be fitted. Fitted with something. You know, you can go and you can buy a suit off the rack and get them to put some cuffs in it and go. But it's not the same fit. If you have somebody who makes a suit for you, it fits you perfectly and until you eat too much. No, I, I'm not pointing at anybody or suggesting you should look at me in that regard. But the fact is, this word has this idea of a special aptitude for given uses. A special aptitude. Now, how do you put that in the translation? I'm not sure. But the, we need to understand that this word equip, it's a predicate adjective describing the man of God. He has been in such a thing that when you look back at how he is, he is number one, has a special aptitude for the given uses that God is going to use in him. And I want you to understand that. And we'll talk more about that when we look at the next part of that verse, which has to do with equipping. So look at the next verse here. That he may be that he will have special aptitude for the uses God intends and equipped for every good work. This word equipped, well, you're going to see something here. Let's look at the four major translations again. Equipped is the word that the ESV uses. The King James uses thoroughly furnished. Now, so we have these three words equipped in the New American Standard, the ESV, and the New King James. Now, they add thoroughly equipped, and I think the New King James would be the, probably the best translation here. Now, what did you want to say? You look at James 1 4, so it says, Let per patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. It's the, it's, it is being filled up and completed and perfect, and Jesus filling us up and making us completed. So complete and perfect is a great Complete is maybe a better, but not for these, not these words here. Now, in that passage in James, I think complete is the better translation for that word. But, yes. In the 2000 NASB, it says maybe fully capable. Fully capable. I didn't see that. That, that is maybe a, a better translation. Fully capable. All right, so let's talk about it. What, what does this really mean? Let's look at this word here in the Greek so that you can see it. It is exartizo, and exartizo means completely finished or completely accomplished. Now, have you ever heard somebody say, she's a violinist? And what, what does that mean? It means she can play the violin. What if it says she's an accomplished violinist? Is that something more? Oh, yeah. Yes, much more. And as we look at that, we begin to see we can understand this word to carry the meaning of being fitted out for a particular purpose. What do I mean fitted out? Imagine you were going to go on an expedition. Let's say Julia and I were going to go on an expedition to Antarctica. Would you find in our bags a Speedo, and a bikini. No. What use would those things be in Antarctica except to kill you? 
You would have all kinds of different layers of clothes. You would have medical supplies and equipment, uh, food, etc. In other words, when you're planning on an expedition that is a serious expedition, you want to make sure you are prepared. That's this concept here that we have and that he wants. We have to become equipped or fitted out for our purpose. But wait a second. For to be fitted out for our purpose, we have to know our purpose, don't we? Well, let me talk to you about purposes just a second. Because this is something that has to do with what God's Word is used for. There are some purposes that all of you have. They're general purposes. Number one, you are to become more Christ-like. That is your goal and purpose, to become more like Christ-like. Number two, you are to worship the one true God. You're not to worship any other God. You're to worship the one true God. That's your purpose. Number three, you are to make disciples of all people. And that is important. However, there are some purposes that some of you have and others of you don't have. And it has to do with spiritual gifts. You know, if you want to ever look up spiritual gifts, you just remember 4, 12, 12. Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. And those are the passages that talk about spiritual gifts. Now, if you look in Ephesians chapter 4, it will say this, starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up the body of Christ. Now, everyone has a spiritual gift. The list in Ephesians is not complete. There are other spiritual gifts you find in those other areas. The question is, let's say I believe, let's not say, I believe that God gave me the gift of teacher. So, I have to be equipped to do that. He's going to try and equip me, and I need to go along with his guidance in getting equipped so that I can be a teacher. I believe he's also given me the gift of evangelism. I used to think you only get one gift, but I think many of us have two. I need to know how to share my faith. If I can't share my faith effectively, even if I don't have a Bible or a tract to use, then how is he going to be able to use me as evangelist? You know, when I was a kid, I went through phases, and when I get a little older, I, I used to love Zorro, and I always wanted a Zorro sword, uh, and then I grew up, and there were certain type of firearms that I thought I would like as a kid, you know, that you could draw real fast and pull, and you could even fan them because the, the hammer was, was wide. But then along came this concept of karate. Ah, what are your weapons then? Ah, your heels, your fingers, your elbows, your toes, your fists. Can they ever take those weapons away from you? No, they can't. You will always have those weapons. But what that really applies to is the Scripture equipping. Because once you're equipped and you, for example, know the gospel and how to share it, you now have that spiritual weapon and you can use it. No one can ever take that away from you. It's always yours, and you need to understand that it's going to be used. And then there are some who are called to special assignments. I have a son named Barrett who God called him to be a missionary to Korea, is what I'm going to say on YouTube. And the fact is that that calling's not for everybody. It was just for him. 
but God has needs to equip him. I'm going to be an evangelist. Say, I don't need to learn Korean. What good is Korean going to do me over here? He needs to learn Korean and how to speak it fluently and learn that culture and that uh, way they live and everything else because he needs to have that to be equipped for the calling that God gave him. Let's go on to good works or good work. Every good work. It is adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, I've given you the definitions there and I want you to see something uh, that kind of sometimes maybe even people have thought that I'm not as strong for good works because load it all. I can get it up there for us. Let's look now. You see the dot there on the right. That's the moment of salvation starts in justification. Let's go in time before that dot. Before justification occurs. Before salvation starts. Before you're born again. How does God view your good works? Filthy rags is the correct answer. That's exactly. And where do you find that? Isaiah 64, 6a. And I have that in there in your notes for us. And we tend to put a lot of emphasis on that because salvation does not require any good works on our part. Now, what if you were going to cite, uh, recite a verse for that, what verse would you use? I'm going to go with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What does it say? Yeah, I'm not saying yours doesn't work, but I've got Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in my notes. It says, for by grace you've been saved by means of faith, and that's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man should boast. And that's what we say. Salvation is not dependent on works. But sometimes we tend to miss out, because we don't ever seem to recite or read the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for... Oh, that means we were created for good works? Yes which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Does God have plans for good works to be performed by you in your life? Yes, yes He does. After justification, what are good works? Loving obedience. Loving obedience to the Master. That's what we need to see. That's what this is. And that's just what it's speaking about. And I want you to see that. And we need to come to understand that good works is the way we offer spiritual sacrifices to our God. Now, there's one other word in this verse we've got to look at. It's a very important word. It goes back to teaching us this key doctrine, the third key doctrine about the Scripture. Every. That word every has to do with the sufficiency of the scripture. How important is that? Well, when the Mormons come to your door, well, they say, the word of God, the Bible, it's divinely inspired. Will they say that? Yep. Will they say, the word of God is inerrant? Will they say that? Yes. Is the word of God, therefore, all I need? Is it sufficient in and of itself? Oh, no. You need the Pearl of Great Price, and the Book of Mormon, and even have access to the many volumes of Doctrine and Covenants. But you see, 
Jesus Christ made an appearance on the North American continent. And you need to understand that. Jehovah's Witnesses will say something similar to that. Even Mormons have tried to, even followers of Islam have tried to tell me, no, you have to have something in addition just to the Bible. You have to have also uh, the Quran. You know, the Quran speaks about Jesus and it, it explains everything. And you just need this. It's not sufficient. This verse is trying to tell us, and this is why this, these two verses are so important, in the combination of inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. Let me go back and, and show you something else. This doctrine of sufficiency is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. To say the Scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip ourselves for life of faith and service. We don't need any other book, any other revelation. What are all the apostates trying to do now? Oh, no, no, no. We're not uh, about a Bible teaching and, you know, verse by verse. We're about experiences. You, you see? So the man of God, they would say, and I'm being facetious now so that there's no question about what I'm saying. The man of God needs to have, uh, you know, Jesus calling for waking up in the morning and he needs to study things like the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church. And there's all kinds of other things that will show him the experiences that he needs to have. That's all a lie. And we need to understand that it's a lie. The Bible is all sufficient. It's all we need. It provides a clear demonstration of God's intention to restore the broken relationship between himself and mankind and the humanity through his son Jesus Christ and his gift of faith, no other writings are necessary for the good news to be understood, nor any other writings required to equip us for a life of faith. Let's look at what Peter has to say on this same same line. You're going to have to look carefully at this verse. You will see it if you look carefully. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now let's look at a couple of things here. Through the true knowledge of him. Where is that true knowledge of him coming from? It comes from his precious and magnificent promises. What are those that's found in the scripture? And he's called us by his glory and insolent, what? Through pertaining to life and godliness. Seeing his divine power is granted to us, that is through the scriptures, everything pertaining to life and godliness. You see that? Sufficiency of the scriptures. God's revelation of himself to us through the scripture is all sufficient. We need nothing more. One other place I wanted you to look at, 1 John 2.14. So you see we've, we've heard Paul, we've heard Peter, and now we're going to hear John. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's the abiding of the word of God 
that makes the difference here that I want you to see. So, if we can put this all together, these two magnificent verses, the scriptures are designed by God to teach us the truth, to guide us in the way to go, and to correct us if we get off course, to train us as to how to live in a way that honors our God. And finally, in doing so, the scriptures will provide us the aptitude to perform in accordance to God's plan for us. And we will be well outfitted for the mission that God has for us. That's what it is. Now, there may be some of you here who you have no mission right now. There is no plan for you right now other than this. That you come and have a meeting with Jesus personally. That is that you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need to rely on the, on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and receive him as your savior. Simply by faith, trusting in him to save you and telling him that. If you don't, the things that you've heard today really will make no difference. And you're not going to spend eternity with God at all. Instead, you will tend eternity far away from him in a very horrible place and a horrible existence. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be together. I thank you for the book that we can open and share freely. I pray, Father, that you will help us to recognize the sufficiency of the scriptures and therefore we treasure them and we want to make them a part of our life so that no one can ever take them away from us. Father, help us to long for the sound of your trumpet. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.